Okay, three, two, one. Party on, Wayne. Party on, Dan. <laughs> so you got to do that again. <laughs> you can't even do it. This well, is he too snickered. Much. He snickered. We just have to straight face go into it. I'll just let me let me roll into it, and uh, we'll try it again. Three. Let's let's say let's say something about Wayne's World yeah, first, first, and then do right. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's okay. do, do, give the title. So this is yeah, right. Okay. Give him a little intro. Right. There. Okay. All right. Here we go. Three, two, one. Good heavens! A podcast about the universe with Wayne and Dan. Well, welcome to another episode. I think this is our seventh episode of Good Heavens, a, an eye-catching uh, title and topic, Wayne's Worlds. Well, party on, Wayne. All right. Uh, party on, Dan. We are going to be talking about your favorite weird exoplanets. We didn't get into a lot of detail in the last episode, but you have a smorgasbord of weirdness uh, about exoplanets we're going to talk about today. Right. There's all kinds of interesting planets out there. Uh, uh, God made all sorts of worlds unlike our own, and I think that's fascinating. And you have a, uh, a scripture you want to start yes. off with. Yes. Uh, Isaiah 45, verse 18 in the Old Testament. Uh, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. So there's an intentionality with the earth being constructed to be inhabited by human life. So these other worlds that we're looking at are not intended to have life like we know it, correct? Yeah, apparently. I mean, there's some of them that... Uh, have some similarities to Earth, and uh, there are some in the habitable zone, as we talked about in our last program. But um, there's still uh, it's it's very questionable whether life could exist on these worlds for various reasons. They're pretty uh, pretty severe, as we'll see. Uh, a lot of simil- some similarities, but the differences that you'll talk about are yeah we'll, stunning. We'll talk about some of these. Some yeah. Of these. Um, and I wanted to kind of start off myself with the idea of something that the famous 18th century skeptic David Hume said. You often hear this in debates about Christianity and the universe. Hume is often brought up. Um, and in his work, he talks about how he believes, and this is a quote, in many views of the universe and of its parts, the beauty and fitness of final causes strike us with such irresistible force that all objections appear mere cavails and sophisms. So, in other words, Hume is saying that the universe, at first glance, strikes us with this very strong impression that it had a purpose and it was designed. Mm-hmm. But Hume thinks and believes that because of human misery and pain on this planet, somehow that what all the terrible things that go on on this planet somehow cancel out the apparent design and beauty in nature. What do you think about that? Uh, I don't think it cancels it out at all. I, it gives us uh, something to think about uh, that uh, even whatever whatever limitations or problems we have in our own experience, that doesn't change the fact that there's evidence of beauty and, and purpose and design. Right. My, uh, my, uh, my head cold, my flu that I had last week doesn't render giraffes. Uh, non-existent, right? That that the universe goes on. Right. Now, our experience is imperfect. I mean, the world is not the way it, for, it was originally created. Mm-hmm. There's there's a fall. 
the man and uh, the first man and woman sinned and this changed nature it did and it changed us right so the world is not as it originally was created yeah without getting a little off topic how much did the sin and the the decay on earth uh we know that thorns and thistles came up from the ground um from the curse of the fall how much do you think the fall into sin has affected the rest of the universe this is a good question, and I don't have a good answer. We, I think it probably has some relevance to thermodynamics, but I'm not clear on exactly what. Yeah, it's a, it's, There is a running down, a kind of uh, a tendency for energy and order to be wasted and mm-hmm. go to disorder over time. Uh, like spilling your coffee on the table. That might be can't. related to the fall in some way, but I wouldn't be – I would hesitate to – Jump to too many conclusions about it. Yeah, it's 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 hard to infer. We can we can because I, the reason I bring it up is because when we're looking at some of these planets, the way they're described is oftentimes you know wild and dangerous and terrible and huge and enormous. It's just like uh, they're just awful things, and so the question inevitably comes up: Were these things designed this way, or did something that we did on Earth and in falling into sin affect the nature of and the atmosphere and, like you said, the second law? And so the main thing the Bible talks about on this, Dan, is mainly about how the fall affected human beings. Okay, yeah, and right. that's really more the emphasis of Scripture. Right. I think anything else is kind of a conjecture, yeah. other than what has been revealed to us. So yeah, there was something there about affecting nature, but exactly how I'm not clear. As I was reading these uh, of these things, you sent me a list of these things, and these are just fascinating worlds. Um, it, it's it's spectacular. I mean, they're just so wonderfully unusual, uh, and in so many different ways. So let's jump in. We are going to talk specifically about the very strange characteristics of some of your favorite exoplanet worlds, and thus the title of our episode, Wayne's Worlds. So, what's the first item? on the agenda. You want to talk about, let's talk a little bit about WASP-18b that we mentioned last week. Yeah. And uh, just for refreshers, uh, our previous episode, uh, our last episode, Exoplanets, uh, you can refer back to that for more definitions about what we'll be talking about. Um, but we're sort of tying this one together. So we, we, we did touch on WASP-18b. Uh, remind us what that title comes from, and let's talk a little bit more about that planet in detail. Yeah, WASP is a research project. It's an acronym. It stands for Wide Area Search for Planets. And uh, 18b is one of those interesting ones. It's very close to the star. It orbits the star in less than one day, less than one Earth day. And I understand that it's spiraling. Astronomers believe it, it's perhaps spiraling into its parent star. Yeah, it's, it's one of the cases that's clearly spiraling in to the star, and it's doing it f- pretty rapidly compared to mm-hmm. many of the other. Some of the, many of these planets, Dan, they could perhaps spiral in, but we can't really measure that. It's too slow. But in this case, it's fast enough that we could measure it. Okay, so uh, give us some very strange and bizarre details about WASP-18b we didn't talk about last time. So as a as an exoplanet spirals into the star, the star starts pulling gas off of it, mm-hmm. and so there you, you can detect gas around the star uh, because of it. Oh, it's, so it's literally extracting gas from the atmosphere. Of yeah, the so the planet is being kind of stretched out, and then the gas is being sucked off of it. Wow. So the gas gets makes a kind of ring around the star. So that would be a terrible place to be. 
you can see the evening news on that planet would be uh, all in a flurry of chaos. <laughs> yeah, and it's really, really hot. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, another hot day here on Wasp 18B. Just That's want to right. tell you, it's 1,700 degrees. <laughs> That's right. Uh, something like that. But uh, anyway, I, I discovered, I think it was one of the articles that you sent me, that one of the chief uh, scientists that was studying this planet closely said that the atmosphere of this planet is mostly carbon monoxide. So it's like, and it's a and it's a Jupiter-sized planet that's like ten times the mass of uh, our own Jupiter, and it's just enveloped in carbon monoxide. So it's like a giant NASCAR planet, you know, like giant aliens with race cars going around the planet, polluting the atmosphere. It's the ultimate global warming disaster, right? Uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, <laughs> uh, carbon monoxide is unusual to have in a real high abundance. Usually, carbon mm-hmm. dioxide would be more common. Yeah. And you would expect more carbon dioxide than carbon monoxide. Right. So why it's like that is is a mystery. The, one of the chief scientists on the project said this about it. He says, the composition of WASP-18b defies all expectations. We don't know of any other extrasolar planet uh, where carbon monoxide so completely dominates the upper atmosphere. Well, it's, it's just a complete mystery. So what do you have on it? Um or did I cover everything? My main interest in it was about the, how fast it's spiraling in. I think okay. somebody estimated that it would uh, spiral into the star in about 650,000 years. And you said earlier, one, uh, one year on this planet is one day. It goes around its star in one day. Right. One Earth day. Yeah, 0.95 Earth day. That's is incredible. How long it takes to do one whole orbit. So by the end of the year, you're 365 years old. How about that? Birthdays yeah. would be a little bit more frequent <laughs> on that planet. Uh, yeah, you wouldn't want to count the time that way. <laughs> Happy birthday. Everybody's having a birthday yeah. every day, right? <laughs> it would be a certain hour of the day where you'd have to have your birthday. Every minute, like every minute of every day is somebody's birthday. Yeah, let's let's not move there. Let's not go there. Yeah. yeah right. So the carbon monoxide, the frequency of birthdays, that alone would make it chaotic. Oh, I got to get a birthday gift for Sue. Well, you just got one yesterday. I can't well, keep up with the birthdays. <laughs> okay. What's your phone calendar like on yeah. that planet? <laughs> okay. So uh, is what else? Anything else uh, strange about Wasp 18B before we move on to another weirdo? No. Why don't we go on to something else? Okay. Uh, uh, you. You and I both studied the uh, this this weird menage of planets, these poor planets that lost their parent star. These are three stars that, that survived, if you want to call it that, uh, their star going supernova. Yes. So the star just blasted these planets, but they're still there. And uh, NASA described it as a house of horrors. What would it be like if our sun went supernova? I mean, the Earth would be stripped and obliterated of everything, and we would just be a hollow shell of a, a sphere going around a dead star. And yeah, so there are some of these planets that they orbit very uh, strange stars that are kind of weird, and, and it's, not, it's not clear how the planets could form there. It's, it's really hard to explain. So, for example, the first... Well, let's uh, let's let's call the uh, let's let's give them the weird nomenclature of these planets. It's PSR B one two five seven plus twelve, and the planets are labeled B, C, and D respectively. So it's kind of a boring scientific nomenclature. Well, let me explain the numbers of do the please dumb. do. I don't mean to. So just... when you see a a capital letter like B, uh huh, 
with a name like this, that means it's the second star. It's not the planet. It's a star if it's a capital letter. So we have a if uh, it's a lowercase letter, then that's a planet. Okay. So we have a do we have a binary system here? Is that what's going uh, on? I believe it is. Okay. But they have three planets around these double star. This p- p- potential double yeah. star. And these three planets are have been vaporized more or less, but they're still there, right? And the star that that died is now a pulsar. Yes, it's a pulsar. So. A pulsar is fast, it rotating very rapidly, and it has a a beam of radiation gives off. And we can the the the, the, ro- the rate of rotation of this pulsar it was fascinating to me. It was like six point two two milliseconds for every yeah. rotation, and this thing is just spinning furiously, and not only vaporizing the planets with radiation, deadly radiation beams, deadly if anybody was living on the planet, but we can pick these up on Earth. I mean, that's how we know. Yeah, yeah, that 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 radiation is shooting out like a laser from this star. And we can pick it up here on Earth with our uh, with our technologies, right? And this twelve fifty seven plus twelve, you know, that pulsar was the first time that they detected a, an exoplanet from the uh, radio velocity. That you remember, okay. Dan? That's where the planet makes the star wobble, wobble a little bit. Okay, and you you detect the uh, redshift of the light from that star. So that's the first time it was done. It was for that. Pulsar, and the scientists were very skeptical about this for a period of time. Mm. Everybody had trouble believing that there could be planets orbiting a pulsar of all things. Um, yeah, it's not what they expected. They didn't. They didn't expect to find. Theoretically, nothing should be rotating around a pulsar. Right. So how, in in a supernova that where that might form a, a pulsar, a planets would be obliterated. Right. So what are these doing? There. So how how did they get there? That's an open question. It's still debated today. Okay, that's that's fantastic. And one of the scientists on the on the study of these things said this. He said, the massive shock wave from the supernova stripped away any atmosphere, and this is interesting, I think, or living creatures that might have once lived on these planets. Yes. <laughs> so the assumption is in our in our search for extraterrestrial life, here's here we find ourselves going, oh, we just missed it. Right. <laughs> if there were any life on these planets, they're gone. Um, so what? What's really these things are are ghostly, rocky shells, dead planets orbiting, as the NASA scientist said, the corpse of an extinct star. Yes, <laughs> but it and, is a is a zombie corpse because it's still right. doing stuff. <laughs> right. And in fact, Dan, there are some cases of things that are first identified and they're they're considered exoplanets. Maybe temporarily until the people find out more about them. So there's some of these that are very dense objects, and they're actually uh, a star that something happened to it. it, it a, lot, a lot of the star got blown away or, or knocked okay. away. So some some objects that are real dense might be we might think they're exoplanets at first, and then they may be recategorized as stars. Once we have more data on yeah. them, yeah. The uh, okay, so. Anything else unusual about these stars except the fact that they're orbiting a pulsar? That alone is weird. Yeah, that's weird. So let's go on to something else. Okay, all right. I have one. Um, this one was a, a lot of fun for me. I was. Uh, it was from. I think it was from your list. Um, HD one eight nine seven three three B. It is a Jupiter esque planet, tidal locked dangerously close to its host star with daytime temperatures on the sun-facing side reaching over 1,700 degrees Fahrenheit. And on the backside of the planet, get this, 
The wind speeds are said to reach a ridiculous 4,500 miles an hour, with the added possibility <laughs> that certain conditions within the planet could produce gusts, I say gusts in scare quotes, of 22,000 miles an hour. Right. So, Oh, good heavens. Yeah, good heavens. That's <laughs> right. So when these many of these planets are up close to the star, so one side of the star is always exposed to the to the star it's it's in tidal lock so mm-hmm. it's it's rotating in such a way that it always has the same side facing the star so one side is very hot and this heats up the gases and it makes these incredible winds yeah and so the winds would blow all the way around it and that it, it reminded me i was looking up uh, verses about wind and you remember in the book of job in the opening chapter where a great wind came and destroyed Job's house and took the lives of his children. And um, mm-hmm. what's interesting is that that phrase, the Ruah Gadola, which means great wind. We know that from the beginning of the book, Satan is behind that destructive wind force. Mm-hmm. But you think about the kind of wind that God can produce. And Amos says, For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts he who makes into darkness and treads on high places on um, the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. And then in Psalms, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. From his treasuries. And I just love the, the juxtapositioning of these super powerful winds on this planet with God's treasuries. I mean, if he's got this kind of wind power in his treasury, what else is in the storehouse of Christ when it comes to the universe? And this is what the end of Job is all about. Where do I store the lightning? Where does light come from? How do I keep the wind? Do you know these things, Job? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? <laughs> no. Yeah, aren't, aren't we fortunate that we don't have those kind of winds? <laughs> Absolutely. Even in a tornado, we don't have winds like that. We have uh, we have some uh, southerly and northerly gusts here in Texas, especially <laughs> in the spring times. But uh, I can't. I don't know what the record wind speed is on Earth, but I, it's it's nowhere near right. forty five hundred right. miles an hour. Um, so anyway, uh, that 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 one planet there just just for the wind speeds was interesting to me. You have another one. Uh, yeah, this is an interesting one, Dan. Epsilon Iridani uh, B. So this is small letter B. And Epsilon. Iridani means it's in the constellation of Iridanus the River. Iridanus, and that's a. This is a pr- pr- very nearby star, just ten point five light years away. And and Dan, this star can be seen with the naked eye. Oh, cool. Epsilon Iridani. It's thought to be a young star, but what's interesting is it's got uh, two planets, and there are two dust rings, or what might be like two asteroid belts. Around the planets? Around the around the star. Around the star. So it's kind of similar to ours in, in some ways. Um, when, when scientists look at a system like this, you can see dust... Yeah, because dust gives off heat. It gives off infrared yeah. radiation from the light that hits it. But if it's something like a rock or like a big boulder the size of a house, you can't see that. That's amazing. So the solid objects can't be seen unless they're really large uh, to give off uh, the reflected light. But these light. these uh, dust rings around the star themselves. So it's it's like it's like Saturn with two rings. 
only it's a star mm-hmm. with two rings, dust rings. Well, our system is kind of like that. We have an asteroid belt yeah. between Mars and Jupiter, and then we, yeah, there's yeah. another belt out beyond the Kuiper Neptune, belt, the Kuiper belt, mm-hmm. or, or the Oort cloud, belt, uh, yeah. and then the Oort cloud. So there's so. So what is unique about this is that this is the one of the first times we've actually seen uh, dust rings around a star. Is that? Uh, no, it's actually pretty common for there to is be it? dust rings. But this one has two planets, and the dust rings are on the both inside and outside the planets. Oh wow! So it, it raises questions about which came first. There's often an assumption that the dust ring comes first and the planets form from it, but right. I'm, I'm not convinced. I think it's possible in some cases it could be the other way around. Yeah. The dust rings could come from planets or something that got destroyed. Yeah. Yeah, like our it's been theorized the asteroid belt was something of a planetary failure between us and Mars. But uh, uh that's been put forward but I don't I don't think it's likely myself no. but um the the dust ring and the planet don't they don't necessarily have to be Related as far as their yeah. origin, I don't think. But but people are drawing that conclusion yeah. and are making that assumption that maybe this happened. But, uh, you know, uh, the Vatican, the chief Vatican astronomer, Brother Guy Consul Magno, is an expert in meteorites and asteroids. Uh, he even has an asteroid named after him, uh, 4597 or 4579 Consul Magno. I think I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, nicknamed Little Guy. Little Guy? <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, uh, yeah, he's an expert on that, I, and uh, it would be nice to ask him what he thinks about that. Um, so uh, what else about Epsilon there? Uh, that's about it for that one. Okay. Um, so uh, the, so the uniqueness don't... is there that the, you have two planets in between these dust lanes. And, right. And how did they form? Uh, yeah. It's a nearby one. Okay. Um, what is another of okay. your favorite worlds? Okay, another one. This is called Gliese 667CC. I've heard of that one. So the CC means that you, you have a big C and then a little C. So remember, capital C means it's a star. So that's the third star in the system. So this is a triple star system. Wow. And it has a whole bunch of planets. A triple star and, system. And, so okay, cool. so... Little c means the second exoplanet that was discovered. So when they discover exoplanets, they name the first one B, and the second one is little c, and then D, E, F, and they go on. And, Dan, what's, what's interesting about this is, okay, imagine you have two stars that are relatively close to each other. Mm-hmm. They are the big ones. Yeah. And they are orbiting each other. And here they are. Now... There's an, the third star is way out here, 230 astronomical units away. That is the exact scenario that uh, Proxima Centauri is believed to be a part of. The closest star to our sun yeah. is believed to be a part of a triple star system, and Proxima Centauri is that third one that's way out there. Right. Yeah. And the, But the interesting thing, it's the one out here that's it's, a smaller star that has all the planets. That's so Not cool. the big ones. <laughs> the wow. big ones, don't, as far as we know, they don't seem to have planets. It's the little one way over here that has the planet. Is it a dwarf, a red dwarf? Or? It's a dwarf of some sort. I don't recall exactly. So how did the, uh, br- briefly, Wayne, how did the astronomers determine uh, that the, these three, among the multitude of stars that they can observe, how do they know that these three are sort of gravitationally bound as a triplicate system? Well, they are, if you were measuring their, their motion, uh, they would have their own wobbles that they do. They, they affect each other's motion, and then the planets are affecting the motion of this distant one. Okay. So they can, they can work out the mathematics to show from gravity 
how much does this distant star affect the other planets and what would it be like if you just had two then you add the third star now what does it do so the mass the, the computational mass that they figure in the, the the mass of the system with the little star and the planets and uh, compute that into the wobble that they would have of these other two stars. Right. And, so, and subtract or add the differences. So watching the star over a period of years, they see uh, kind of a, a variation in its position and its velocity and mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. So then they try to uh, model that on a computer to show, okay, with if we know the masses, then we can plug this into a computer and we can work out what is the most likely orbit configuration. And this brings me to a point that I wanted to make, um, and you can comment on this, of course, that isn't it weird? So in a materialistic universe, um, as you know, you've been in this field for, what, 30 years, right? Um, That the explanations that astronomers come up with are attempts to understand what's going on, of course. And the issue there is uh, that they're coming up, trying to come up with explanations uh, without a creator or an intelligence or a purpose behind them, right? So what's weird is that in a materialistic universe, what, what, what is the origin story? Except that we came from non-living matter. We were just uh, um, stardust, if you will. We were the leftover atoms from uh, supernova. But I thought it was interesting. C.S. Lewis makes this great point in a uh, lesser-known essay about our brains and stars and planets that we observe. Mm-hmm. And he says this. He says uh, that we are compelled to admit that... Between the thoughts of a terrestrial astronomer and the behavior of matter several light years away, that peculiar relation we call truth. So in other words, that we can understand everything that we've been explaining is is a fascinating fact of the universe in and of itself. That we can calculate, understand, observe the process, uh, the, the behavior, uh, the numerical calculations that all of these things so far distant from us can be understood by us and it's what strikes Hume and everybody else and Einstein what's that famous Einstein quote yeah Albert Einstein said uh, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is so comprehensible yes and that that is an unrelenting unavoidable feature of our universe that sometimes just gets taken for granted but this is what Lewis goes on to say. He says, this relationship that we have, uh, I'm not quoting and paraphrasing here, but the relationship that we have on the gray matter in our heads to, to stars and planets light years away, like you said, is, is, is phenomenal. It's weird. It's strange. It's unusual. It strikes us like, wow, what is that? But Lewis says, this relation has no meaning at all if we try to make it exist between the matter of the star and the astronomer's, the astronomer's brain, considered as a lump of matter. He says, the brain may be all sorts of relations to the star, no doubt. It's spatial relation, how far away it is, uh, and it's time relation and a quantitative relation. But to talk of one bit of matter as being true about another bit of matter seems to me to be nonsense. (laughs) So, yeah, I think this implies a purpose that we're supposed to ask these questions. We're supposed to... Uh, think about what the meaning of, of the universe is. It's not just the wonder that it's there. It's It points us to the creator. Wait, so, right. We seem- Dan, we're fortunate that we can even do this at all. I mean, our, our sun is in between two of the spiral arms in our galaxy, which is a very good position to be able to observe things in our universe. 
and uh, if we were close to the center of the galaxy, we, we wouldn't, wouldn't see. We anything. wouldn't be able to see hardly anything. Right. It's like uh, it's like uh, in Exodus. Uh, I love the, the passage. This reminds me. Like Moses is the first uh, recorded astronomer, one of the first recorded astronomers. I mean, if you go back to Abraham, but I, I love this passage. It says, uh, "The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush." And the sight of the burning bush with fire and yet not being consumed captivated Moses' attention. And Moses says, I must turn aside now, he said to himself, and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And I think that same curiosity that God uses in fire and Mm -hmm. the elements Mm -hmm. to turn our attention to him. Mm -hmm. Right? So all of these flaming elements, all the light we see from these stars and dusts, uh, are literally turning our attention to the heavens like God turned Moses' attention to, to the burning bush. That fire that lit that bush is the same fire that lights these uh, things we're talking about. So That's right. I like to make that, uh, that, that correlation. Uh, so what's another weird one? Let me uh, make one other point about Glee yes. 667. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a red dwarf, and uh, there's six or maybe even seven planets around this system Wow. And, and the, the the planet C is uh, probably in the habitable zone uh, for this star, but the problem, the only problem with life that we know of on that one is that this star, that distant one that's out way at a distance, it's a what's called a flaring star, so it has really strong solar flares. So it sneezes and coughs and blows and and well, that that means that there'd be strong radiation and it, it wouldn't be very promising for so life. So a solar flare we're familiar with. Uh, there's actually heliospheric observational uh, weather forecasters who monitor the blasts right. of the sun. So because those things can blow away our our satellite technology. Well, yes, but see for us. They're relatively minor. Yeah. They could damage a satellite, but they're not going to kill us. The, the, uh, but in, in many systems, these flares are far more powerful than, than they are for us and our system. Yeah, so we, the, the other strange thing about our what we call the habitable zone is our sun is a it's, – it's by itself. It doesn't have a companion, which is kind of unusual because a lot of stars – I think uh, uh, one of my correspondents in the book that we're doing, Dr. David Bradstreet, is a binary star expert – and in his book, Starstruck, he talks about uh, the, 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 the real course of stars. More stars than not have, have pairs and uh, uh, binary triplicate systems. Uh, so our sun is singular, and our sun is, n- is not nearly as violent as, as we're finding in these other, right. other universes. Which, quickly, before we go on to the next planet, I want to make another point about uh, what we mean by habitable. And, you know, I, I know I've talked to a lot of atheists and skeptics who say that well, the universe, if God designed it, would be more uh, life-permitting. It would be less deadly to us. Mm. Uh, you would find more habitable zones, more Goldilocks zones, more planets with life on them. Why is 99.9% of the universe lethal to our existence? That's an argument that is often put forth. What do you think about that? Well, that's kind of making an assumption about why God would make it a certain way. And yes. we, we need to be very careful about thinking that we know what God is thinking. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, it, it, look at it this way. I think it, it goes back to something like the in the movie Contact. Uh, there's the book by Carl Sagan, right. Contact. Right, right. In, in that book, in the movie, it says, uh, uh, well, it's, it's talking about life in outer space. It says, if there's no one out there in space, no other life in space, then it's a lot of wasted space, right? Yeah. But 
that depends on the purpose. What if the purpose of the Creator is to uh, help us imagine the His infinite uh, nature? What if it's more about communicating to us His greatness and His nature? Right. Not about a habitable. It's not that it's all habitable. Only Earth is really yeah. apparently habitable. Yeah. So the, the the issue is the assumption behind the atheist's comment is that if God designed this. Uh, well, the assumption is that God designed this for us, right. and that's not really what Scripture reveals. We, we, God has given us a place in the cosmos, but I think primarily from what I read in Scripture, the universe was designed primarily for Christ and his glory. That that's for the, his glory. For his glory, yeah. not, not for our livelihood. Right. Uh, it's, a temporal, it's a temporal existence for us. It's good not, heavens, it's about him. Good heavens, it is about Jesus. And that's, that's, right. that's what the universe, and I was talking to somebody about this the other day, an atheist acquaintance of mine. And we were going back and forth on this, and 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 I think the universe does two things. The the deadliness reminds me of God's holiness. Mm-hmm. You step out of this universe, out of our little bubble that He's created for us, you will die. Um, but if you want to explore, quote unquote, the metaphor for the holiness of God, if you want to explore the universe, what do you got to do? You got to put on the suit. You got to dress up and have the proper attire if you're going to go outside the Earth's atmosphere. It reminds me exactly of the laws for the Levitical priesthood. Before you go into the Holy of Holies. You better have the right clothing on, and it better be perfect. Right. Because if your clothing is not arranged just so, and you are not clean and haven't been through all the ceremonies that you have to go through in order to be in the Holy of Holies, you will mm-hmm. die. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea of holiness. The astronauts have their Levitical garb that protects them from death, <laughs> right? And the, and the Levitical priests have their ritualistic garbs that they wear when they go into the Holy of Holies to protect them from death. So I think the deadliness of the universe... Reminds me of God's holiness, but as you said, it also reminds me of God's glory, because mm-hmm. glory in the Hebrew means weighty. Mm. And what's the chief principal aspect of the universe that we have discovered? Mass. Mass. Right? <laughs> and that is precisely getting to the idea of what a Hebrew would have meant by glory, kabod, weightiness. Mm. It's like the, the wealth and the power of a Near Eastern potentate with his armies and his fortification and his gold and his silver like Solomon and his horses and his slaves. This is weightiness. And so you think of Solomon in all of his glory. What does Jesus say? Not even Solomon in all his glory and all his weightiness was like a lily. So God is saying that the weightiness of man in comparison to the weightiness of God is nothing. It has no, it, it weighs as much as a flower. And I think the universe and the mass, when you talk about black holes or stars or planets, I think that all points to the weightiness or the glory of God. Those are the two things that I think. But I think the universe is primarily designed for God and his glory, not for uh, human beings to be. Uh, I mean, we're comfortable here. We, we have a nice, we, we can breathe oxygen and we're not covered in methane. We're not swimming in, you know, carbon monoxide. We're not dealing with 4,500 mile an hour winds or 1,700 degree temperatures. Uh, we live in a place that gives us a vantage point on the universe, and we can understand and explore it. Right. So it makes me think about you know, how God is not limited, and but yet we are so limited. And yeah. so our best efforts, as good as they are in science and figuring things out, we all have. We still have a lot of limits of what right. we can do and what we can determine. And I think uh, these exoplanets we're talking about, as strange as they are, are kind of a, a, a more of an exegetic uh, from creation about the enigmatic wonder and mysterious nature of God who created us. These things are. I reserve these things for my glory. I'm only going to tell you a little bit. You don't need mm-hmm. to know everything. But what mm-hmm. we what is revealed is like wow. 
yeah. one, the personality and the depth and the wisdom and the knowledge and the power of, of who Jesus was and, cre- and is in creating the universe. You have something else. Yeah, I did. One of my favorite issues uh, on in exoplanets is about the retrograde exoplanets. Oh, this is yeah. You told this me about this. Is this is really fascinating. fascinating. This is great. So imagine in our solar system, Dan, our sun is spinning in the right-handed direction. Like so, if you point your thumb in the direction of the north pole of the sun, okay, like you, thumbs up, your fingers curl in the direction that that it spins. Yeah. Okay. Now that's the normal direction, and and planets go in that direction all around the sun in their in their orbits. Uh, and they normally spin in the same sense. The they same spin direction. in the same way the sun is. Their suns are spinning. However, we have some exceptions as far as the spin. Now, Venus spins left-handed, not right-handed. Okay. And so, if so you, that explains a lot about love, doesn't it? Yeah, that love. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> kind of backwards there. It's kind of backwards and <laughs> contrary and mysterious and so um, foggy and hot. And if you start with a, with imagine a planet in the normal right-handed direction, and you tilt your hand. 90 degrees. So your thumb more, is uh, parallel with the ground. Or more. Or more. If it gets more than you're 90 going toward, degrees. You're going toward thumbs down. Yeah, if you go more than 90 degrees, then you're beginning to point down, and so that begins to be retrograde. Okay. In, in its direction. Now, there are planets, exoplanets, that orbit their star retrograde compared to the direction the star spins. So essentially the star is spinning one way, and its host... The parent, the planets that it's hosting are spinning in the opposite direction. Well, um, but I'm talking about the orbit. The orbit, right. Well, no, right. We can't really know which direction they're spinning. But, but their orbit is in the opposite yes. direction of the spin of the sun. Right. So that kind of calls into question the protoplanetary disk theory about how our solar system developed or just how solar systems develop in general because the idea is the star is spinning, it creates a dust cloud that collapses in the planet's then take on that same angular momentum of spin. Right. Um, but we're finding that that's not the case when we're looking at these exoplanets. Some of them are spinning contrary to the spin of their star. Right. So now this is not, not spinning, but orbiting. Now it's only a relatively small number of these that we can we know this about them. But okay, uh, you, the theory is that you start with a disk around a star and it's spinning, and so the planets would have to get their motion from this disk. And so all the planets would have to start in the same direction, moving around mm-hmm. the star. But it just doesn't work with these uh, tilted orbits of exoplanets. So we're supposed to find the NASCAR is going in one direction at Texas Motor Speedway. Everybody's making a left-hand turn every so often. But there's a couple of crazy guys making right-hand turns and going the opposite direction on the track. Yeah, not only that, but it's like they're going up out of the track and back into the ground. You know, they're, it's, they're going up into the stands and coming back. It's tilt, yeah. It's like up in the stands and back down underground. And then, NASCAR might get a lot more uh, audience yeah, if they can so, make cars do that. It's weird. And so when you have a tilted orbit, this cannot possibly come from this disk theory. The protoplanetary disk theory. Falling from a disk. Cannot explain that. So they, they've come up with other theories about this, but the other theories are just as strange. Uh, they're really weird ideas. So they would say there were there were other objects that were influencing these planets that made their orbit tilt over time. And... Uh, uh, it requires multiple objects kind of affecting each other in a complicated way, but it's not that we know of evidence of this. You know, so if you see a planet with a tilted orbit, why can't it just be like that? 
I mean, it doesn't have to have come from some other complicated scenario. It could have been created this way. Right. But when there's no creator, you basically have uh, uh, you basically have to describe uh, the natural means by which these planets uh, find themselves. Uh, right. Without without God, uh, you and I have talked about this before uh, quite a bit. That that oftentimes what are invoked in such strange situations, like with our own planet Uranus got knocked on its side, or so it is mm-hmm. believed that it got mm-hmm. knocked on its side. It ran into several collisions, but but Uranus and its moons are all moving in the same opposite uh, axial rotation. Yeah, and the um, moons are all lined up perfectly in the, in the same plane. They, they don't look like something that got knocked, knocked over. over. Right, but the, the, the general chief <clears throat> explanation, a lot of explanations that try to try to uh, naturally come up with scenarios uh, are what we call, what you and I have kind of humorously called, the collision of the gaps. Mm. That every time you don't know something, there's a collision. <laughs> yeah, yeah, collisions are assumed. And, and sometimes other planets that we don't see evidence for are assumed mm-hmm. in order to explain what happened to the others that we do see. Right, right. So there's a lot of, there's. I, I, I think it's it, it was Occam, William of Occam, right? Uh, Occam's razor. Uh, let's not add multiple uh, items to uh, causes uh, that just add up to well, this planet's got to be hit here, and then it's got to be hit here, and then it's got it's like a bank shot, and it's a trick shot in a pool parlor, you know. Yeah, the, right. the, the way these explanations are so long and drawn out in terms of collisions and you know other influences and gravity and all that kinds of other stuff, but it, it seems very difficult to come up with these scenarios. But a lot of a lot of the scenarios we just uh, the modern science has no answer for. Right. Um, do you have? We got about five minutes here. Do you uh, want to touch on a couple of more weirdos? So let me see what I can find here. Weirdos um, in a good sense of the word. Here's one that's called uh, Gliese 1214b. This is a relatively nearby star, 41 light years away. And uh, the planet is thought to be about 2.7 times the diameter of Earth, but about seven times the mass of Earth. Oh, wow. So that puts it about the same mass, I think, as uh, Neptune or thereabouts, roughly. And uh, a, little, a little bigger than Earth. But um, they do detect water from this planet. Really? They, they how, have, how do they do that? So the, what they've done is uh, it, they did a transit, and they can see the, the starlight go through the gas of the planet. Okay. And so they, they can get a little bit of an idea, what it's, not in a very precise way, but they can get some idea what it's made of and what the gas is. But it's they can't tell exactly. So in this case of this planet, they can't tell exactly. So it could be water vapor more. It could be more uh, something more like uh, Titan. Titan has nitrogen and yeah. methane and mm-hmm. and things like that. It could be somewhere in between those two. But um, it does have water. And there are extrasolar planets or dust rings around stars where they have detected water. So water is a common thing. And then, and how they do that basically is the light that is given off by water, correct? Yes. Yeah. So you're you're again. This gets back to the whole Moses at the burning bush. The way that we're detecting the presence of these chemicals is primarily through the light spectra that they give off uh, through the telescopes that we uh, we have created to, to to find them. And again, the universe seems to be intentionally designed for us to discover something about this. Um, so, so this planet, Dan, it's, um, it's, it could be in the habitable zone, I think. And so it's, but the problem is we don't know very much about this for sure. You know, what if it has water, but it happens to be sulfuric acid, like in Venus, Venus yes. has lots of water in the atmosphere, but it's sulfuric acid. It's battery acid. 
it could be deadly even if it's in the right temperature. But again, it gets back to the idea of we call these worlds deadly, deadly to us, but they were never intended to be uh, inhabited by human beings. Right. Um, so closing thought here, uh, one of C.S. Lewis's favorite verses and one of mine as well um, from Colossians, Paul says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him, and here it is, for him. So the universe was created primarily for God's glory. So the idea that that it was created for us, it, it's not it's not really the central tenet to why the universe is here. It was not designed primarily for human beings, but for the glory of God in Christ. Uh, any last concluding thoughts or plans? What we'll do, I think, is if for this podcast, uh, we'll put we'll put some of the links to these interesting planets that you can go and and uh, study them yourselves. We'll provide that uh, in the description below. I just say, Dan, let's. This is a good subject to kind of watch the news on. There's lots of news that comes out about extrasolar planets, and it's a really hot area of research in astronomy. There's a lot of things going on in this. In this topic. Fascinating. So if you, so if, there's lots of news and lots of interesting examples of, of exoplanets to, to keep up. I, for some, the issue is about the search for life on another planet. But uh-huh. To me, that's not the the, the ex- exciting thing. It's pretty much the rule that there's not a lot of promise for life on these planets, right. from what we actually know. But what's really interesting to me is just that they're different. Yeah. They're different from our system. They're different from our world. God made all of these worlds. And so the more the different they are, the more there are, that just shows how special our own planet is. Right. So the universe is filled with burning bushes. And it's turning the heads of every human being. So right. if you've got children that are interested in this, this is a great topic to, to get into and to get your sons or daughters interested in astronomy because there is so much unknown. And uh, it's almost like, you know, God has reserved uh, these planets for people to make discoveries. There will be no end of discovering things about the universe until Christ returns. Good heavens, Wayne. Good heavens. It was glad to good to have you again here, and uh, good to do. Uh, I think this is episode seven, and uh, I have enjoyed your Wayne's worlds. I think this was fantastic. So party on, Wayne. I'm party on, Dan. Good heavens. We'll see you next time. I don't think I've ever said party on before in my life. <laughs>